this morning. Hi everyone, I'm Stuart. Probably to keep that psalm open, that's where we're heading tonight, looking at this psalm and jumping through a bit of the psalms, but perhaps you just want to relax and I'll read those psalms to you and you can just keep Psalm 1 open there. Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, help us as we unpack this psalm tonight to see what it says to us about us, about you, about where we stand with you and how we can be made right with you. And uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you have a song that always reminds you of a certain place or a certain time in your life? Anyone want to volunteer a song? I'll give you one of mine, then you might tell me yours. I had a Mitsubishi Lancer. It was um, burnt orange in the 70s when I was a young fella. It had roof racks. It had a board nailed to it. Girl by my side, usually my sister. (laughs) And I was off to the beach, and the beach boys were playing. That was my song. Go back a year or so. There I am in my room, listening to the Rolling Stones with my quadraphonic sound system. My parents shouting, turn it down, what's that? Paint it black, what's all that about? Turn it off. Sing the hymn, praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation, which some of you may know, and there I am at a family funeral. Seems to be the song of choice of relatives. Songs in the Bible can also take you back to a time and a place. Our first song recorded in the Bible is that of Miriam. After the Israelites had just come out of the, uh, the Red Sea and they'd come to the, the shores of the, uh, the trip they were going to take to the Promised Land, Miriam gets her timbrels out and composes a song. Some of you may have sung it in some form. It begins, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he is hurled into the sea. She goes on later on in the song and says, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? And the answer, of course, is no one. There's no god like you. So when sung over the following years and decades, this song always reminded the Israelites of their way of salvation, how God had delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh. Later on, it was the Psalms that became the songbook for the Israelite people. In fact, Jesus would have grew up with the Psalms. He would have memorised a lot of them. Uh, Jewish people spent a lot of time memorising. That's the way they learnt. And for Jesus, memorising the Psalms was just part of growing up. For the majority of church history, um, people sang the Psalms. Uh, hymns and songs are a re- recent addition. And so when I was growing up, we used to say psalms every Sunday, and often it was the same psalm, like Psalm 95. I'll read to you a little bit of that psalm. Uh, It's a wonderful psalm, and it's a good way to start a service when you hear it. It starts off like this. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and install him with music and praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. What a wonderful psalm to say over and over again to remind us of who our God is. In the Bible, you know, there's very different types of um, literature. You've got letters, you've got apocalyptic literature looking at the end times. Uh, You've got uh, prose, you've got poetry, you've got history. 
And it's always funny, isn't it, when um, some writer quotes from the Bible and they take it completely out of context and they say, this is what the Bible says. And you think, well, it's a poem. How can you make that into a fact? Uh, but in the Psalms, it's exactly the same. There are different kinds of Psalms. They're not all the same. We've got praise Psalms. We've got Psalms of thanksgiving, Psalms of lament, Psalms of, lo- of request. Laments are interesting. We don't have Psalms. Well, we don't sing laments nowadays unless you count country and western songs where they sing about dogs dying but laments are about being upset and crying and letting God hear your tears Um, and in the Psalms you can can sing Psalms and you can say Psalms where at the end of the Psalm it says I wish my enemies uh, their babies would be taken from them and their heads dashed against a stone you think why is that in the Bible How, how can that be true well it's a lament And what the writer's saying and what God's doing through that psalm is saying, sometimes you are so angry with life and sometimes you are so sad and sometimes you are so miserable, this is what you want to do. But rather than do it, say the words to me. I'm listening and I understand the situation that you're in. There are some psalms that you can't put in any sort of genre. And Psalm 1 is one of these. Psalm 1, some say, is a wisdom psalm. It's a bit like the book of Proverbs. It's got some sort of wise sayings in it. Others see it as a gateway psalm. You know, you go through this psalm and it opens up all the other psalms. So there's some themes that are picked up later on by looking at this psalm. And that's the way I'm going to uh, look at it tonight, as a gateway psalm. And it talks about two options in life. It's a very stylized psalm, this one. Two options. Uh, and uh, there's a right way and a wrong way through life. Uh, it's a very structured psalm. The first word is blessed, as you can see, and the last word is destruction. They're two opposites, aren't they? Uh, blessed, and in uh, one of the versions, the last word is perishing. In the Hebrew, it's even more stylized. The first word begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The last word begins with the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So in this stylized way, the writer's saying there are two groups of people you can belong to in life. You can't sit on the wall. You're either going that way or you're going that way. And the writer's question is, to which group do you belong? That's what he wants us to think about. So let's have a look at it under these headings. Two ways, two humanities and two destinies. Two ways, two groups of people and a winner and a loser in that last situation. Well, let's look at the two ways. Blessed is the man, says the writer. Now, why does he say man and not man and woman? Why does he do that? Is he being sexist here? Well, no. Man is generic. It it means men and women. Remember in uh, Genesis, it says there, uh, God created man in his image, male and female. He created them. It's it's a person being described here. Uh, It's a singular figure who represents an example of a godly person. We know they're godly and we know they're in a relationship with God because you'll see uh, in verse 2 the word Lord is mentioned. See, it's in capitals. And down in verse 6, I think it is again. Yes, the Lord in capitals watches over the way of the righteous. Can anyone tell me why is it in capitals? What does that mean when you see it in capitals in the Bible? Because it's not always in capitals. I'm sure somebody knows and they're not going to tell me. I'll tell you then. Uh, thank you very much for helping me out. Yeah, 
it, 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 comes, it comes from that time when Moses met with the Lord at the mountain and uh, God gives him instructions about what to do. <clears throat> Go back and rescue my people and Moses wants to know who's sending me. Who, who are you, God? And God gives him his special name, his intimate name, that is Yahweh. Later on it's translated in the Greek Jehovah. And in our Bibles, whenever you see the word in capital letters there, uppercase, Lord, it's referring to this intimate name of God. And so this is not about rule keeping this psalm. This is about relationship, an intimate relationship with this Lord. It's a personal name that God only confides to his people when he's looking after them and caring for them. Adam and Eve knew it. They were happy in the garden. They walked with God in the cool of the evening. Don't be long for that, walking in the cool of the evening. Bring them autumn. But they had the capacity to live holy and unblemished lives. And this righteous man, this righteous person in the psalm, uh, also has that capacity, but with a difference. He now lives in a fallen world. Because of Adam and Eve... The situation has changed completely. And this person has to work very hard at not being like those around him. So you can see the psalm begins with some negatives. Blessed is one who does not walk in the steps of the wicked or stands in the seat of the sinners or sits in the company of the mockers. You might think the writer's saying the same thing three times, but actually he's progressing. See, he goes from walking to standing to sitting, see the progression, just the slowing down, from counsel listening to way doing, to seating, being part of the group that's doing it, and then the three different characters, the wicked who are in his ear, the sinners, and then the mockers. So it's a psalm that's actually talking about the descent of someone. In Hebrew parallelism, that's what it's called, it's a progression downhill, deeper and deeper into sin. Let's unpack it. He talks about the counsel of the wicked, those who have no place for God in their worldview. Those people who you talk to, maybe at school, your neighbours in the shopping centre, those who talk to you regularly, they're, they're nice people, but their view of life is very different to yours, the way they see things and the advice that they give. Now, I, I gave this illustration this morning. It's probably not uh, pertinent to you guys because not as old as me, most of you, but um, someone was talking to me the other day about retirement and uh, they said, uh, you know, do you take a lot of time off? Do you go and do a heap of stuff? And I said, well, no, at church I'm fairly busy there and I'm on, you know, I teach uh, with the kids' group and I clean the toilets occasionally and I do this and do that. I said, oh, no, no, look, the whole idea of retirement is it's your time and you've earned it, so you should take it off and, you know, hang the rosters. Uh, now, I had to take that advice and said, thank you very much, but I had to sift that advice through what I know, what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't talk about retirement. It talks about work and rest. It talks about service. And so you filter what the world says to you through what you know about what God says and you come to a different conclusion. And so the writer says, be, be, be aware of the counsel of the wicked. Sometimes it's very subtle, but be aware that you don't listen and take it all on board. And then he says, if you take wrong advice, eventually it might lead to wrong behaviour if you keep on listening to people who tell you what to do. He says, standing in the way of sinners. It's all about imitating, following what they do, copying their behaviour and accepting their lifestyle. Uh, again, when I was younger, I must be getting old, I'm talking all the time about when I was younger, uh, <clears throat> I played sport at a fairly high level 
and often in those teams there was a culture of womanising and alcohol abuse. How can you be part of a team and you still want to be part of the group culture but avoid those extremes? And so as a young Christian, I sought counsel and I had to tread very carefully uh, through that quagmire to work out how you can be a Christian and survive in a culture like that. And for those of you who play sport and are progressing through uh, to high levels, you're going to find exactly the same thing. And you need to be aware as a young Christian guy or a young Christian girl, how am I going to cope with that? Talk to people. Seek their advice. Seek what the Bible says about that. And finally, there's the mocker or the scoffer. Here's the person who arrogantly says, uh, I think God doesn't exist and I can prove it because I know everything, therefore I must be God. Uh, These people mock God. They ridicule faith and they continue down that slippery slope. And we know that uh, some people actually join them, don't they? They listen to the advice, they stay and do the lifestyle and in the end they turn and become the mockers themselves. And maybe we can think of friends who are like that. The example I'd like to give is Lot in the Bible. Uh, Remember that uh, he split with uh, Abraham when they came to the Promised Land. Lot went to the city of Sodom. And we see Lot, as we read about him, sitting in the gate of Sodom. Now we know what Sodom was like. We know the behaviour in that city. But here he is. He's just part of the culture. Uh, He's with the elders. He's making decisions. And from what we know, the decisions he was making weren't particularly godly ones at that stage. So what's this characteristic then that the godly person needs to have? If these are the knots, what we're not supposed to do, what stands out as a positive here? Uh, Is it that our neighbours are cool and we're not? We're a little bit like the Flanders family who live next door to the Simpsons. I mean, they're the cool ones. Flanders are a bit strange. Uh, is it that our neighbours are easygoing and carefree and we're rule-driven and we're really strict in our parenting and things like that? What distinguishes the believer in this psalm from the others? Well, we're told there that his delight is in the law of the Lord. Have a look at verse 2. He meditates on the law day and night. Now, the word law here, again, the Hebrew is Torah, T-O-R-A-H, uh, and it means law and it's said twice there now often in the hebrew and especially in the psalms when you're writing something down and you want to emphasize it you would say the same word different ways you might say statutes law commandments to emphasize it but here he says law twice why because he wants to emphasize that particular thing the law and in this example the law is all the revealed word of god not just the rules and the regulations but everything that person, up to this stage, in their experience, knows about God. And we're told that this person needs to delight in the law of the Lord and meditate it, meditate on it, need to listen to it. Now, we find it hard to do because of our sinful nature. Uh, we don't like to uh, listen to God's law. In fact, Paul later on says, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. So for a believer to uh, love the law, they must actually have the Holy Spirit in them to fully love the law because it's against their nature since the fall to love it. Genuine Christian experience, you see, begins with the mind. 
Sometimes we think that it begins with a, a, an emotional impact and it can be how we meet God. But unless we go on with the mind in our, in our dealing with God and our thinking and looking at his revelation, we're not going to grow as Christians. We're to be transformed, Paul writes in Romans, by uh, the mind and God working, the spirit working in our mind. And to meditate on the law of God. Often we think of meditating as sitting on the floor with our arms uh, up in the air and our knees crossed, I can't do that, it's too hard, and thinking God thinks. But meditating in the Hebrew is an audible way of thinking. It's more like muttering. It's, it's like what your mum does when she's getting you ready for school and she says one more word from you and I'm going to ring your... No, she wouldn't say that, would she? No. Uh, but that's what muttering means. It means saying things over and over again. And uh, we're to meditate on God's word like that. We're to say the words over and over again. A good example of that would be Psalm 142, where the writer, talking about the terrible things he's going through, decides to talk to himself. And he says this, Why are you downcast, my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. Three times in that psalm he says that same refrain as he, as he mutters these words to himself. So to delight in God's law means to know it, to know the word of God and to speak it to yourself. Sometimes the best way to do that is with song. Let the psalms fill your mind. The songs we sing in church rather than the songs we hear on our iPads, iPods and other ways of communication. So there are two ways. People are going the way of the scoffers and the sinners, listening to the wrong advice, and then there's a believer who delights in the law of God. And then there are two humanities, two groups of people. Have a look at verses 3 to 6. The person who delights in the law is the person in verse 3, is that person. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf doesn't wither, and whatever they do prospers. Then the illustration changes. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff. The wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction." So here's the godly person planted next to running water. Uh, it's a great picture, isn't it? Especially in a drought. Often you see trees a little bit away from the water who are withering and dying and uh, you see trees near the water that are alive and, and still thriving. I went for a walk yesterday along the bike track, got caught up with the fun run and kept on waving to people I knew as they were puffing, as they were running along. Uh, but I was looking at the trees and there's some dead trees there, big old gum trees that are dying. And yet down near the water's edge, there are trees that are still thriving and growing. Uh, this tree su has supplies of fruit regularly. Okay, the, the fruit keeps on coming, doesn't miss a year. It has green leaves all year round and it prospers. It's an idyllic picture, isn't it? At the beginning of the book of Psalms. And yet, as we read other Psalms in the Bible, we see that it's not always like this. Godly people aren't immune to leaves withering and fruit drying up. So often in the Psalms you, you hear uh, questions like this. How is it that the godly who always seem to suffer 
and the wicked seem to prosper. Let me give you an example. Um, Psalm 73, let me read that to you. Here's what the writer says in Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. That's the reality of life, isn't it, at the moment? And we look at and we say, yes, that's true. We often look at people who we know are evil and yet they seem to prosper and do well. That's why Psalm 1 is so important to us because it shows us a picture that's like an end time picture. It's saying that whatever it seems to be like now, in eternal terms, this leaf will not wither. This tree will keep on growing. This tree will always be nourished. It's always be productive. This tree just keeps on keeping on. There's no autumn here. There's no lasting drought. That's what the godly person looks like. Productive in godliness. Enduring in the face of hardship. And having a prosperity towards God that can't be counted in dollars and cents. The writer compares that with the wicked. And notice the way he does it. He doesn't say very much, but he says it pretty well. Not so the wicked. They're like chaff. Chaff is that flap that's over the grain. And uh, when you're winnowing in the breeze, which is what they used to do, they throw the wheat up in the air and the heavy stuff would fall down. And when the wind blew, the chaff would blow away. And God describes the wicked as being just like that. The godly are like a strong tree, watered and healthy and growing in godliness. The wicked are like a lolly wrap that you throw up in the breeze and it blows away, never to be seen again. Get the point? There are two humanities, two ways of living. One is substantial, one is insubstantial, even though they might seem the opposite at the time. In the end, things change. We look through our own eyes, but in the end it's God's eyes that are important and God sees them as being like chaff. And finally, there are two destinies. There's a destiny, isn't it? One bloke's a winner and one bloke's a loser. I don't know if we're in the same match. They look like they're on different courts, don't they? But anyway, that's the best I could find. Uh, The godly prosper, but not so the wicked. They may appear to be prospering in life, but there's no future for them. Again, Psalm 73. uh, Let me show you what the psalmist says there. He keeps on going in in the same vein. He says, This is what the wicked are like, always free of care, They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. So he's in the depths of despair saying things are going terribly wrong. But then things change in the psalm for him. That's why the psalms are so good to read because it's a journey. It talks about real life. He says, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, I entered the house of God, I entered with the community of God's people. And then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. 
You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Just like a dream. When you wake, they're gone. That's what the psalmist sees in Psalm 1. In the final judgment, these people will not stand. Even though it looks at the moment they've got everything, in the end they will not stand. There will be no justification for them, only judgment. They won't be with the assembly of God's people. They'll be excluded from the only community that counts. And people need to understand their end if they choose that ungodly path. You know, when a terrorist blows himself up or grabs a couple of knives and starts to kill people and hopes that he'll be killed by the police and he thinks that he's going to go to some sort of uh, glory or paradise or there'll be 72 virgins and celestial happiness, what a shock when he wakes up in hell and torment in the place of judgment, excluded from the very presence of the God that he thought he was doing a favour to. That's the reality. That's the judgment that talks about here in the psalm. That's the end of everyone who's not building their life around the word of the Lord. Look at the way the psalm concludes. The way of the wicked leads to destruction. Two ways, two groups of people, two humanities, two destinies. And you know, Jesus summed this up really well from our first reading. Uh, That was just the end of a series of uh, different ways of looking at things. Jesus talks about two gates that you can go through. He talks about two paths, the broad and the narrow. He speaks about two trees, one bearing good fruit, one bearing bad fruit. He talks about two builders, one wise and one foolish, two foundations, one on sand, one on rock. And Jesus says if you want to be on the right side at the end of time, If you want to be in the assembly of the righteous, then you need to be about doing the will of my Father. He says, listen to these words of mine and do them, and you'll be just like the godly in the psalm, delighting in the law of the Lord. And did you notice the uh, destiny of the believer in the psalm? Have a look at verse 3. person is like a tree, and at the end of that, whatever they do, they prosper. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous. The Lord cares for them. He knows that every obstacle, every twist, every turn. The Lord cares for the believer intimately. He's totally got our backs. The godly may perish. Sorry, the ungodly may perish, but the godly will never be out of the sight of the God who loves them. So there are two ways, two humanities, and two ends, and the psalmist, as I said, asks the question, where are you? And we all put up our hands and say, we're the one who delights in the law of the Lord. That's me. That's what I want to do. But do we? There's only one person in all history who's fully delighted in the law of the Lord. There's only one person who's never walked in the counsel of the wicked and his way always prospered. Only one person could say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I can't say that. You can't say that. But Jesus could. It's both damning for me and uplifting. 
damning because when I look at this psalm, I see how far short I fall of God's standards. God says, I want you to delight in my law. And I say, well, I try, but I, I find myself on this slippery slope all the time. I'm climbing up, but I always keep on slipping down. I don't deserve to be counted among the righteous. But it's also uplifting because what I see in this psalm is a need for a saviour. How am I ever going to be right with God if I can't even meditate on his word for a little while? What I need is Christmas. What I need is Jesus. So I'm uplifted as I look to Jesus in faith. He fulfills this psalm for me. At his death, he takes on the curse of this psalm. He becomes the wicked so that I might receive the blessing. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, says the psalmist, but delights in the law of the Lord. That's you. That's me. And it's all because of what the Lord Jesus has done when he came into our world at Christmas time and three years later gave up his life so that we might be blessed. Why not I pray for us? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that you call us to know you. And uh, through Psalms, we often come to find out your heart and the heart of those who call to you. As we uh, ponder the Psalms uh, today and next week, help us to come closer to you in the things that we read. Amen. You might have some questions for me about that Psalm. And uh, Ash is going to take that around. Anyone's got a question? Um, Stuart, you're talking about the Psalms, uh, like books of the Bible are written in different genres, um, and so Psalms are songs or poems, mm. that sort of thing. Um, I'm just thinking about when Jesus was alive and we read his words and they're quite prescriptive, is that right? Where they say, you know, love your neighbour or do X, Y and Z. Yeah. Um, how do we read the Psalms in that sense of do we, should we still follow what they say or is it just someone's thoughts and musings in a song that we, like, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, because when Jesus says something, you say, well, that's, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. I think you've got to look very carefully at the psalm to see what kind of psalm it is, as you said. Uh, if it's a lament, uh, like dashing your heads of babies against, yeah, you need to read that very carefully because sometimes it's someone just pouring out their soul and you've got to look at the context. Sometimes it's given to us. It might say a psalm of David during this particular time, Psalm 51, for example, when David has uh, committed uh, adultery with Bathsheba. And he writes a psalm asking for forgiveness. So we know what that psalm's about. We know the context. So it's much easier to apply than, say, some of the other psalms. Uh, and you could include lamentations like that if you ever read that book. It's, um, some of the things said there you, you wouldn't sort of take out and say, oh, because I read that, I'm going I'm to do that this week. I don't think that's the way it should be read. So just reading carefully what, what it says, and if you can get a hold of a commentary that tells you what type of psalm it is, that really helps. Thanks. Hello. Hi, Stu. Um, just wondering what the place in your mind of the lament is... Of in, what? Of the, the lament... Lament, yep. ...is in our lives as Christians now, and particularly using the psalms, like... Mm. Um, either corporately or individually. And the second question was to do with meditating. Mm. Um, you mentioned uh, that meditating is not just doing the guru sort of stance yeah. and that sort of thing. Um, how, how best can we meditate 
as Christians on God's word, you know? Yeah. I'll answer the second first because I can remember that. <laughs> <laughs> then I'll ask what the first question was. Well, uh, one of the ways I think we can meditate is to know the word, so learning it uh, and learning chunks of it so that it comes to mind, especially in difficult situations where you haven't got a Bible with you. And if you're not really good at learning stuff, just knowing where to go in the Bible for particular things. Sometimes in the front, you know, it's got in times of and it lists where to go, but I think you can do better than that. And as you read God's word, just underline those things when you're feeling good about life. Sometimes there's, there's something in the Bible that will be really uplifting and it's worth saying to God because somebody else has said it before. Uh, and when you're feeling sad, which will come to the laments now, uh, I, th- I think there's a lot to learn from the laments and the way the writers talk about their relationship with God and how intimately they can speak about and, and the anger that they can express. Often as Christians, we don't want to express our anger to God because we think it's a sin. Mm. When you read the Psalms, uh, it's not like that at all. When you read the book of Lamentations, it's not like that. People get very angry with the things that go on. Uh, Job would be another one. Um, and that goes back to Caroline's question too about that re- reading things and taking them out of context. Because, say, for example, in the book of Job, you've got the friends giving advice, which is wrong advice, but sometimes some of the, some of the words that they say are gems, but in the context, it's not. Uh, and then back with Lamentations and the, the laments in the, uh, the uh, Psalms, you need to read them in the context of when they were written if, if you're able to find out what that context is. And, but, and but, do they have a place like corporate, like when we're meeting yeah, together there, like this? Yeah, I think this, there are some like things. I, I think um, sometimes for, uh, uh, before a confession, there, there could be a place for a lament. I, uh, you and I probably, we grew up with psalms and you know, being read every day. Uh, I actually got sick of it. I was, the last church was that we sang them all the time. We chanted them. And I was really glad to leave that. But having left it, you know, after a little while, I, I now like it. And I think, that would be good to do. So maybe there's a... Yeah, maybe Stu could look at that. Yeah. Hand that over to him, the man in the funny suit. Well, I was going to say it was a question for the two Stu's, but um, anyway. Yeah, look, just a, one, have a lament at Christmas. One final comment. Uh, I know that Psalm 73, uh, for example, the uh, lament about, you know, why do the wicked seem to prosper yeah. and us guys who've got a relationship with God we're you know we're getting wiped out I know that brought great comfort to numbers of the parents of the Malat victims Mm. um, Mm. because uh, you know they didn't understand till they entered the sanctuary of God yeah and then they saw okay what's going to happen and Mm. at that stage they didn't know Malat was the murderer and so on um, but anyway thanks Steve that's really helpful anyone else I think we're done.